want you to stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 11. We've already read a couple times, 23 to 27, but I am going to put it in context because the context tells us about what we're going to be talking today. 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. But about these things, I will give directions when I come. With that, we end the reading of God's word. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to his church. And you may be seated. Well, we have been slowly working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism. We're in that section, which is finishing the second section on our salvation. And we've been dealing with the sacraments, first baptism, and now the communion. This is the third Sunday we've dealt with the Holy Communion. Uh, We've been focusing on the two things that I think summarize sacraments. Mystery. And here's the test. What's the second one? Seed. Oh, you have been listening. Oh, my oh, heart rejoice. <laughs> Mystery is that Holy Spirit uses these sacraments in a tangible way that we may not understand to work 
in us to bring us our salvation, to unite us with Christ, and to provide all the benefits that Christ has given to us. The seed is that each time you do the sacrament, whether it's a baptism or take the supper, there is planted within you some seed that the Holy Spirit wants within you that begins to grow and grow and finally will bear fruit. We saw, and I, I mentioned this in uh, infant bap or baptism of infants, uh, uh, pedo baptism, that for those who are the elect infants, the seed is planted that one day will usher into their faith. In communion, it is a seed of union with Christ, and the benefits will come from it. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you take it. It's not simply because it's a rite of the church or a sacrament, but these are beneficial ways in which the Spirit works within you. Uh, we come to the end where we're going to recall a summary of communion, and now in the last day, day 30, basic question behind these three questions, who ought to take communion? Legitimate question, don't you think? Well, if you don't, you ought to. Who should take communion? This is part of that passage, and it's the reason why I read the whole passage, because the words of the institution that Paul gives us live in a context. Remember, a text without a context is a pretext. Okay. And the text that he has to do is when they come together to eat the Lord's Supper. Not simply the meal, but in the Corinthian church, it was a whole banquet. It was like they didn't do it necessarily in the service. They went to fellowship Paul and they ate. And in the midst of that eating, they had the Lord's Supper. But there were problems there. And so Paul is saying, some of you are doing this to your detriment. And others, the inferences, the others are doing it to your betterment. Uh, note how I put this. I didn't say who is worthy to partake of the meal. Because if you know anything about yourself and the scriptures, none of us are worthy to take the meal. That's why we have the meal. Because we are not worthy. It's the essence of grace. We don't deserve it, but it is given to us. And in being given to us, we are to accept and work with it. So let's mark our, that I work our way through the questions of Lord's Day 30. And we begin with question 80, which in a sense I'm going to review because I did take a stab at this last week since this is kind of one of those uh, questions that combines two, two days. It flows from the 29, and it helps you to move into 30. Question eight, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? And remember, we talked about the different ways in which Christ is present, whether it's a real physical presence, transubstantiation or consubstantiation, whether it's simply a memorial, it's a spiritual presence, or the last one, which is the one that I tried to show, I think is the most legitimate one. It is a real spiritual presence. I think it's the one that the catechism tells us. 
And so he says, what's the difference? And the Lord, in the answer, the Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have full forgiveness of all our sins by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that by the Holy Spirit we are engrafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father and is to be there worshipped. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead have not forgiveness of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is still daily offered for them by the priest. And that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and is therefore to be worshipped in them. And thus, the Mass at bottom is nothing else but a denial of the one sacrifice and passion of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. You know the symmetry of that question. What is, it, what is our idea of the supper? It is we have full forgiveness and we have assurance of our sins. What's the problem with the Mass? There is not full forgiveness and there is no assurance of your salvation. And then they go one step further, which was added a couple years after the original because you had the Council of Trent by the Roman Catholic Church in which they solidified their idea of the Mass. And they added this part that the Mass actually is a form of idolatry. When you come into the sanctuary of a Roman Catholic Church and you see this tabernacle up on the altar, in that is the elements from a previous Mass it is the actual body and blood of Christ, and therefore you must genuflect, as you would if Christ himself were physically in our present. You would gen genuflect. In fact, you do more than genuflect. You'd fall on the floor and shut your mouth and do nothing because you're in the form of the king of kings. But that's what they're saying. And that's a form because they're doing it to a created thing and not the creator. That's idolatry. Sometimes our idolatry is a lot more sophisticated. But that one, it comes from their understanding of the Mass. And so, Christ gives a sacrament through the Spirit, and what he wants to do is nourish and feed his people. As the elements would feed our body if we ate them, although you would have to eat a whole lot of that little wafers to get any good meal. And you'd have to drink a whole lot more of one cup than to get, to get a, a good drink. But as they would, even in those little feed our body, so too the Spirit through the elements feeds our soul with Christ. He brings Christ down to us, not physically, but spiritually, and we receive the benefits which come from Him. And so in your outline, I, I hope you have an outline. I didn't pick up a bulletin. Is there an outline? Okay, thank you. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which is a single sentence in the original, and we have to break it up in order to be able to read it and make sense. But those are all the benefits we have from Christ. And part of your homework, should you decide to accept it, is to go read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 by the fireplace tonight when it's really cold. And look at what I've written down as some of the benefits. Let me just pick a few. You've been chosen by God in Christ for his gracious salvation. You have been adopted into the forever family. 
And that idea of adoption is such a crucial doctrine to the church. Your redemption, you've been bought back from the great debt which you owe to God. He has lavished his grace upon you. This is not an meager amount of grace as if you only get a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Of grace. This is a lavish. This is like Niagara Falls flowing over you. That's the idea of that word. And he has lavished it upon you for everything that you are and have. Uh, you have an inheritance. And in fact, it's a guaranteed inheritance. Not from Ephesians 1, but from 1 Peter 1, verse 5. He talks about that. I mean, it's nice to know you're going to get a, an inheritance. And you hope that the stock market stays up long enough that you'll have a good inheritance. But here you have an inheritance that is astronomical. And it's the inheritance of Christ's holiness and righteousness and character which God gives to you. Those are all the benefits. And that's part of what the Spirit brings to you when you eat the meal. One of the things I think he does is he reminds you of a particular benefit that you need at the moment in which you take that meal. If you're listening. You think you're alone. You think you're isolated. He reminds you, you've been adopted into the family of God. I mean, you have history. You have a great father who is perfect. You have all the benefits that come from him. He will never leave you nor forsake you. It says, you're not lonely. You just may be alone, but you're not lonely. And you are reminded of that by the Spirit. Second of all, he assures us of our being engrafted by the Holy Spirit into Christ so that we might worship him. In essence, this is a promise from, that Jesus gave to us in John 15, 1-6, when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. My father is a pruner. He takes the branches and he cuts off the dead parts in order that living parts may grow in the branch. Uh, this is a paraphrase. This is not a direct quote. It's a teaching of it. And at the same time, he takes those branches that are dead and he cuts them up and he throws them into the fire. But I'm the vine, you are the branches. You have been engrafted into me. And the Spirit is, a, is the being who keeps us together. He unites us. I've said it before, and I think it's pretty accurate. The Spirit is the sap that runs through the vine that feeds and nourishes the branches. I love that illustration. Partly because I developed it. <laughs> no, I... But it comes out of that, is, that history and that thinking of vine and branches. And as long as the Spirit is running, He's bringing to you the nourishment that you need. He feeds you. And you are engrafted. Uh, it, this, in a way, highlights one of the chief teachings of the New Testament, which we have in some ways forgotten in our day. And that is our union with Christ. There's a phrase that Paul uses, I think it's about 43 times, that you are in Christ. And we sometimes, we just kind of slip over that. Think about that. You are in Christ. You are encapsulated inside of him. And nothing can take you from him. You are protected, you are guarded, you are nourished, you are fed. You are in Christ. Your union is with him. So the times when you feel, oh man, 
life's not very good, you go, no, I'm in Christ. Does God love me? Yeah, I'm in Christ. Am I troubled by things? Yeah, but I'm in Christ. That's who I am. That's, I think, how Paul uses it as well. And this shows a difference from our understanding of communion to that of the Mass. The Mass creates insecurity. Why? Well, they say Christ's sacrifice on the cross was the beginning of his forever sacrifice. So every time they celebrate the Mass, they extend the sacrifice of Christ. It's not that he is re-sacrificed, although we sometimes talk about it. They're just extending what is a cross, and he has to be sacrificed again and again and again. So today, he's going to be sacrificed in Toledo, in Tehran, in London, in Dayton, again and again and again. Why? For your forgiveness of sins up to that point. Up to that point. Therefore, what about my sins tomorrow and after I finish with the Mass? When I'm thinking, man, that priest couldn't talk himself out of a paper bag, which is a sin. Is that taken care of after the Mass? No. How much do I have to do and how well am I forgiven by God? And you say, I don't know because I got to go back to Mass and I should do it every day. Because I don't know if my sins are forgiven or not. How far different that is than Hebrews that talks about the sacrifice once given for all sins. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The words that he finishes the cross with. It is finished. The price has been paid in full. Banking term. You bring your debt to the bank. They stamp it paid in full. You owe absolutely nothing. And that goes for all of your sins. He doesn't have to be sacrificed for the sins of today and tomorrow. Your sins have already been paid for. Past, present, and the ones you're going to do in three minutes. They're already paid for. That's our security. The Mass doesn't allow that security. And again, the Mass creates idolatry. If the bread and the wine actually change into the actual body and blood of Christ, if they're put in the tabernacle on the altar, and you come and you genuflect, that's not idolatry because that's the body and blood of Christ. But if they don't, and I think last week we showed it couldn't because of the whole idea of Chalcedon, 451 A.D., where the divine part of Christ and the divine person and the human person are joined, but never mixed. And one does not mix in or meld over or melt over into the other. The Mass says that the ubiquitousness, the omnipresence of God, the divine part of Jesus, becomes part of his humanity, and therefore he can be everywhere at one time, humanly, in body. And we say... No, you can't do that according to a teaching of the church that has been accepted across the boundaries of the church. And therefore, if you bow before them, you're bowing before a creation, not the creator. So every time you enter a Catholic church and you genuflect, every time you take those elements and you believe they have become Christ, 
you are committing idolatry. You get the idea that what they're getting at is you just put that shovel in and you keep adding to the pile of manure that you are developing in your own life. That's how, in a sense, hideous they are. So, that's that question. Question 81, who then ought to come to the meal? And it goes, those who are displeased with themselves for their sins, yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining infirmity is covered by the passion and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life, but the impenitent and hypocrites eat and drink judgment to themselves. And here we get to a teaching that is desperately needed in our own age, especially in churches that say, hey, whoever you are, just come to the meal, come to the meal. And no, the Heidelberg Catechism was in a sense fencing the table. And that by that, by saying this is who should come and these are the ones who should stay away from the table uh, with, in, as much as they can. The short answer they gave is true believers are invited and wholly uh, asked, invited to come to the table and participate. But those who are unbelievers are cautioned and commanded, stay away, stay in your seat, do not come to the table. So these are the true believers. And, and again, the question the Heidelberg Catechism answered, who are the true believers? It lengthened that description. And the first thing they say, those who are displeased with their sins. In other words, those are repentant. And what does it mean to be repentant? Well, I've given you a couple R's that will tell you. It is to be revolted by your sin. It is to see how ugly it really is. I mean, that's the problem with temptation and sin, that sin looks so good. You know, if I just tell this little white lie, this little variation, I'm going to get myself out of trouble. And I won't have to deal with somebody. And that looks real sweet because I'm not a person who likes conflict and I don't want to deal with it. However, eventually the truth comes out. To be repugnant, you have to know what sin is, what it does to a person, how it dishonors God, and how it affects individuals. Parallel illustration, as we are learning now after years of study how much video games and your smartphone and your computer are affecting your brain. The reports that are coming out that say the more time you spend with them, you are rewiring your brain from reality to non-reality. You know, why do you think you watch kids in the mall going down the mall going like this all the time? Why is it that you sit down at a meal and someone has to pull out their phone to find out what has happened? Because we've rewired our, our brain that it's more important to know in that moment what's on our phone than to talk face to face with an individual. We also know that the kids who have been geared that way, 
They have a hundred friends on Facebook, but they don't know one of them. Really don't know one of them. Because they're all friends on cyberspace. And therefore, I understand why they feel they're alone. Because they are. Despite, I got a thousand friends. No, you don't. You got a thousand contacts. And that's part of what sin does. It changes reality. It changes our view of God. It alters and it affects exactly how we live. So you have to be repulsed by your sin. You need to renounce sin and your sinfulness. It's not simply enough to renounce your sin. The actions or the failure to act that you do. You know, we sin in thought, word, and deed, or in what we fail to do in thought, word, and deed. You not only have to renounce that, you have to renounce that that's your basic nature. And though you are a new creation in Christ, that basic nature is still there and working within you. There is this great battle that goes on within you. And you have to continue to declare that's who you are. And then to renounce it is to say, "Ah, that's not what I want to be anymore. I want a new life. And I want that new life to take over every area of my sin. Thirdly, you have to resist it. You have to fight the strong battle to overcome. How many of you have habits you've developed over your lifetime? How many of you have bad habits that you developed over your lifetime? How many of you are trying to overcome those bad habits? It didn't take long for you to get that habit. It takes 21 days to develop a new habit. Actually, in some ways, it takes even longer because you're always tempted to go back. Peg and I have been on a a diet, a Whole30 diet, and it's really neat. But I'll tell you, when the holidays came, it went out the window. (laughs) And those donuts that our grandkids get on Sunday Saturday morning, they look real good. They still look good when we go over there on Saturday afternoon. Because you're always fighting it. We have a way of coddling, excusing, ignoring our sinfulness. And we no longer can do that. To be repentant is to say, I don't want to coddle that. I don't want to do that. And fourthly, it's restitution. To make amends for the sins you've done to others. Some sins are private. They hurt you, but ultimately they will hurt others because they affect the way in which you live. But there are sins that you do against other people that you need not only to repent, but ask for forgiveness and make restitution where you have failed, where you have hurt them. Sometimes it's not just enough to say, I'm sorry. And that's what we're called. Now, note, in all of this, You always will be doing this your whole life. It is not, I get to a certain stage and I've got it made. I hear people say, I am a mature Christian. And quite frankly, I hate that phrase. Because in comparison to God, you're still a little baby. You're a little kid. You're not mature. You are maturing You are growing. You are getting better and old. 
Here I am in my 60s. I'm still maturing. I still think, have things that I need to deal with. But I'm not a mature uh, person other than my age is mature. We're going to be doing this our whole life. You're always going to be fighting and you'll probably always fail because our human nature is so strong that we're not even aware of it. And even if we succeed in one area, you know what the Holy Spirit does? Dastardly thing he does. He shows you another area. Oh man, I thought I had it together. No, 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 no. You got to work on this area now that you have done. You're doing better in this area. And quite frankly, I think in some areas, the Holy Spirit does not let you have complete victory. You know why? I mean, we have a movement within the church and even the church today. I'm going to be victorious over everything. Do you hear what that is? That is such an arrogant, proud statement. And the reason I think the Holy Spirit allows some sins to continue in your life and he doesn't give you victory is because it makes you humble. It's like Paul with a thorn in the flesh. Three times he prayed for it to be gone. And the Lord simply said, my grace is more than sufficient. And the grace I think he was talking about is not the ability to overcome. Just understand, Paul, with that thorn, I have already forgiven you. I've lavished my grace upon you. And some things you may go to your, your death with, but it's simply because God wants to humble you and to keep you growing and going and not stop. Now, which ones is he doing that? Well, you got to ask him. Some of them are victorious and some of them aren't. But I, I think you, you do this in order not to get yourself into the trap of thinking that you're not growing. Everyone grows. Every little child grows. We had a, son, a grandson who was born, what, three months ago? And it's amazing to go over there and see how much he's grown in two days. He's always growing. We're always growing. Even when you get past 30, you're always growing in some way. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. But you're also fighting the fight. So you have to be repentant in that way. Also, those who desire to be made whole and to improve, to become like Jesus, is part of what the catechism says are for those who want to come to the supper or ought to come to the supper. We need to examine ourselves. And here we're back to the passage where Paul says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's very much like the words that Paul gives to the Corinthians in the last part of his last letter to them, at least the last letter we have. In first, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where he says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that this about uh, do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may 
do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. You know, he's finishing his second letter to a really mixed up congregation. They are in bad shape. In fact, nobody would want to go there in our day and age because it's so bad. I love it when people say, we want to be a first century church. No, you don't. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> it's really bad because of the beginning. But he's saying at the end, examine yourself. Look to see if you truly believe. And he gives the same test that he gave when he talked about uh, their faith, to, when he talked about the Colossians. Self, do you realize about yourself that Christ Jesus is in you? And to the Colossians in the first chapter, what does he say? The mystery of God is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the test. Is Christ within you? So how do you know you're in the faith? Well, Christ is simply. It's not simply because you have faith. James reminds us that even the demons know the faith, but they shudder. If you shudder at the Christian faith, that's probably a good indication you're not in the faith. But if you are in the faith, there are some things that happen. You begin to understand you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. It's not because of who you are, when you were born, your family, your nation, that you go to church, that you take communion, or any number of things that take place. It is simply because of Christ and Him alone. It's not even in the sense that you believed in Christ. Because your belief is not even something you did. It is a gift. Paul says to the Ephesians, it is a gift of God. And so simply because you came down the center aisle and raised your hand and prayed the prayer. No. The test is, is Christ in you? Do you see that? Do you know that? Do you look at him and say, I will not add anything to his work or to his person, but him and him alone? And then, do you know that the Father has forgiven you your sins through the Son by the application of that through the Holy Spirit? Do you know that you are forgiven? You say, I can't know that. Yes, you can why? Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit to assure you that you are forgiven. That those sins have been taken away. The Spirit reminds you of those words, it is finished. The Spirit reminds you that Christ died once for the sacrifice of your sin. Your Spirit reminds you that you have been adopted in the family. The Father looks at you as if you have never sinned and He calls you His child. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what Peter was talking about in 2 Peter 1 when he said, be assured of your faith. And you take a look at it. Do you love Jesus? Just even a little bit. You know, those who are unbelievers do not love Jesus. They may admire him. They may think he was a great person and a teacher and an, an example to the human race. They may know all about him. But the question is, do you love him? If it's only a little bit, because even if it's only a little bit, that still comes from a person who has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. 
If you had not been transformed, you would not even want to be with Jesus. You wouldn't love him at all. Do you treasure him above all else? Is he to you the greatest thing that there is on earth? I mean, that's one of the reasons why sin is so repugnant. Is because when you treasure Christ above all else, sin looks so ugly and dirty and sneaky and ought to be jettisoned. Non-believers don't love Jesus and they will not. Believers will love and want to be with him. And what's the sign that you love him? That you want to obey him. John 15, 1-7. This is the evidence you abide in me. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now it's not keep my commandments and therefore you'll love me. It's in the keeping of commandments that shows that you love him. That's the evidence. Do you want to follow Jesus? Or do you kind of say, well, I can go 50% of what you say, Jesus. But after that, mm, that's negotiable. <laughs> when you're talking with the king of kings of the whole universe, nothing is negotiable. When he commands, he doesn't say, well, if you want to do it, or if you think this is a good idea. We have to do that because we're not him. But he says, obey what I command you to do. And that's a sign of your love. That means you have to examine yourself. And this is part of what you ought to do before you come to communion. And that's why I've added it in here. Review the Ten Commandments. Review the Beatitudes. Review the two great commandments. You just work with those. That's enough. And you go through and you said, when, when have I created an idol? Well, we create idols all the time. We just have to know what they are. When have I lied? When have I stolen? Not simply money, but time and effort and somebody else's work. You know, plagiarism, I think, in college is still a problem. And it's still enough for an F, right? That's why when one of my seminary professors says, every time I look at your paper and you spell honor, H-O-N-O-U-R, I know you've plagiarized. Because that's not how we do it in, in America. That's what he was getting across. If you go through those, and you go through those every day, you know what you realize? I broke every one of them. And I need to confess every time I've broken it. Same thing with the Beatitudes. Same thing with the Great Commandments. And you will have broken every one of them. Part of my devotions periodically is to go through those commandments to say, where have I failed to do it? Where have I failed doing them? Uh, review who you may have hurt Repent and be reconciled as much as you can. Make restitution if it's needed or if it's possible. You know, if, if you hurt somebody who has died, you don't cry out to them in prayer. We call that necromancy, talking to the dead, which is a sin. What you do say, I can't do anything about it, Lord, but forgive me for that. If you can, 
you make amends. You make restitution. Forgive, forgiveness is one of the major marks of the new life. To forgive those who have offended you. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. Matthew 18, a great chapter on that. And again, that's not a nice suggestion. And in fact, it's a relationship. I have been forgiven and therefore I can forgive others. I said, what they did against me is unforgivable. No, it is you aren't willing to forgive, but they are forgivable. Because especially if they're followers of Christ, they've already been forgiven. And therefore, you need to forgive others. And you need to forgive yourself. Sometimes we carry around with us unforgiveness of ourselves. I can't believe I did that. Yes, you did it. Can you forgive yourself for doing it? And I think that, to me, that's one of the most crucial issues in the church. Can you forgive yourself for what you've done? People harbor that guilt, that pain, that agony, because they cannot forgive themselves. Notice what you're doing when you do not forgive yourself. You have put yourself in the place of God. If God can forgive you and you have sinned against the creator and the, well, the benevolent dictator for life of the universe, who are you to say, I cannot forgive or I will not forgive myself? What an arrogant, prideful. See, you not only confess your unforgiveness of yourself, you're, you confess your pride and your arrogance. You see how bad this gets? The more you do it, the deeper you go. And yet, to come to this table is to be doing that throughout the week. And especially on Saturday night. I've mentioned it, we've mentioned it. Saturday night is, to, not, is, not, is not to party until 3 a.m. and think you're going to make it to Sunday school and church and be active. Saturday night is like the Jewish Sabbath. It begins at sundown and it goes to sundown. Sunday night at sundown, which is around, what, 5.30, quarter of 6 now? Oh, well, there goes a dinner date for me. <laughs> now, about that time is when you begin to think and pray and inspect yourself to come to church. And you get to bed early so you can wake up and be refreshed. You don't need the cup of coffee before either one. And there you are. You go throughout the week. And when you recognize that you have harmed somebody or you need to ask their forgiveness, you go to them and forgive. I've mentioned this before. In my background, they used to have preparatory services the week in the week before they had communion. And those were times when you went through the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes or the Two Great Commandments and you said to people, think about who you are, what you've done. Now, ask God's forgiveness. And now, think about who you've hurt and make it up to them before you go. See, the question is... Are you showing love for yourself and for Peter? That's the problem with hypocrites. Hypocrites are those who play act. 
They act as, as if they're righteous. They act as if they have it all together. And they are just putting out a front for everyone else. They think they're a great saint who knows all their sins and, it's, and yet they are so easily entangled in sins they don't even know about. That's one of the reasons why it's difficult to use yourself as an example. Because none of us are good enough to be examples. <laughs> we all have hidden areas. And we have to say, yeah, I have hidden areas. I have areas that I don't even know about. I have areas that I do know about that I don't want people to know. And when you're doing that, you're not being a hypocrite. Because Christians are one who examine themselves. They confess. They're honest about their own sinful nature and their sinfulness. They know and they are trying to keep themselves clean before God but they are always examining themselves. And those who are examining of themselves are being disciplined by the Lord. Now that word discipline comes across like punishment. You know, sometimes we had to discipline our kids. For one or two of them, all you had to do was look at them cross-eyed. And they were disciplined. They shrunk. Others, the, uh, seat of edu the, the Board of Education had needed to go to the seat of understanding. Because that's the only way they understood what discipline. And we think, well, the Lord is going to cause this bad thing to happen to me. He's disciplining him. Actually, that's not necessarily what discipline means. Discipline means to train. So what the Lord is doing is he's showing to you what needs to be done. What needs to be changed. And he's helping you to do the change. And he's disciplining, training you in grace, in knowledge, in love, and in a new way of life. The last part, the last question has to do with the seriousness of the table, which I don't have time to read. But it reminds us, fences are good things. No matter what you hear in the news today, fences are good things. You need fences. And the table needs to be fenced. That is, those who come who are unbelievers to the table, profane the meal, which is what catechism says. It's what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. Israel had turned to idolatry. They ended up wandering. Uh, he said to them, flee idolatry, and then he talks to them about communion. Here, he take, in chapter 11, he says, you come together for a fellowship meal. The poor don't have any food. The rich have more than enough. The rich eat all that they have and nothing goes to the poor. How are you discerning and how are you taking care of the body? You're not. You are profaning the covenant. You're profaning the whole idea. You're family. You're in this together. You're supposed to help one another. And you are flaunting yourselves in front of others. And in verse 27 to 32, he talks about the lack of discernment. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. That you, if you are not a believer, because believers are free to come to this table. This is a place of healing and wholeness and of restitution with God. But if you're not a believer, 
you're drinking and eating judgment upon yourself. And the more you do it, the more you're heaping that judgment upon yourself. And if it is not covered by Christ before you die, that will be part of your judgment. Therefore, you should sit in the pew and you should stay there. Don't worry about what other people say. Oh, they're going to think I don't want to do it. Well, you shouldn't for your, the sake of your own soul and the sake of your own eternal destiny. Don't do it. But for those who are believers, this meal is serious. I mean, there's really deep stuff that takes place when you eat that bread and drink that cup. It may not seem that way, but it's happening. But it's also joyful. When the Holy Spirit in a mysterious way plants in you some seed while you're doing it, what great joy. Because someday that seed is going to grow and you're going to see the fruit of it. Maybe 30 years, but you're going to see it. And the Holy Spirit is acting with you. And therefore we say to believers, you are more than welcome to come and partake of the bread and the cup. And so proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Let's pray. Father, forgive us as if we have ever taken this meal lightly. Forgive us if we have ever come without our examining ourselves and dealing with our lives. Forgive us, O Lord, if we've come as unbelievers because we've heaped your wrath upon ourselves. But Father, help us in the time we have before we come to this meal, in the singing of your praise and the listening to the preaching of your word as we prepare ourselves. Father, prepare us who believe to come, eat of the bread, drink of the cup, and proclaim your death and be given the benefits of this meal by your Holy Spirit. Therefore, O oh Lord, work within us and among us for your honor and your glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.